Allow me to extend my welcome to you as well. My name's Matt. I'm on the staff team here at the Christian Union. I have the great pleasure of serving the CU by serving and, and leading the staff team. Um, over the next couple of weeks, no doubt you'll get to meet uh, most of us, probably just some interviews up here as well. Um, but we're really looking forward to meeting you if you're new, really looking forward to, to catching up and reconnecting if you've come back. It's so fantastic, despite the fact I can only see half of your faces, uh, that I'm seeing a lot of familiar eyes um, and a lot of unfamiliar ones too. So that's really encouraging. Uh, we really hope that you find a home here in the Christian Union. Um, how about I pray before we begin, okay? Our Father in heaven, we are so thankful that we can gather freely on campus uh, to read from your word and hear it taught and proclaimed. We pray now that you bless us, that you give us insight into the words that you have given us, and that we will leave here changed, more mature, and more ready to serve you and your gospel. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, around the time I started uni, I changed churches. Uh, it was a bit of kind of funky stuff happening at, at the church. A lot of things kind of went down. There was a leadership spill. But, but really, the reason that I left was because, because of all of that, the evening service that I was attending just kind of evaporated overnight. And so myself, my sister, a whole bunch of us, all of a sudden were kind of like churchless or, or homeless. We didn't know what to do. And so what we had to do is we had to go and find another church. Uh, so what we did is we, we went out, we got some recommendations, uh, we heard about a local church in the area, we'd heard some good things, we even knew some people who went there, uh, and so we turned up, and we went to the church, and not a single person spoke to us. We thought, okay, we'll give them a chance. So we actually walked and stood after the service in the middle of the church, in a little huddle, waiting. Absolutely nothing. Now... Given the benefit of the doubt, maybe it was a bad day, maybe they had some stuff going on, maybe there was a pastoral crisis and their attention was elsewhere. But, but, but despite the fact that that may well have been the case, it's really hard to shake first impressions, isn't it? When you walk into a church, whether they mean to or not, that church will communicate to you what kind of church that it is. The people, the way that they dress, what they talk about, even the building itself and how they decorate it, all of those things will combine to give you an impression of what this church is like, and in particular, whether or not you belong here. Now, some churches, as you've walked in, you will notice that they value tradition, they value ritual, and so they'll be decked out with all sorts of symbols and plaques, everything will be ornate and carved out of wood, prayer books will be everywhere. Uh, other churches you'll walk into, you'll see that they value the authentic experience of worship. You'll walk in, you'll hear really cool music, the lighting will be good, the stage will be prominent where you can put the band. Other churches will value rich community. They sit in circles. They've gotten rid of kind of line-by-line -line chairs, and as you walk in the door, seven people invite you to lunch, and you have a nice time, and then you drive home, and oh, wow, there's somebody from the church mowing your lawn. So you, you get the idea, right? You, different churches will communicate to you different... Uh, values. I actually was on a beach mission once and, and one of the guys came up to me and asked me whether my church had a mechanical bull. And I, and I said, why? Oh, because the church down the road from me has a mechanical bull uh, and if you don't have one, why would I come to your church? Now, obviously that church valued something. I don't know what it was, but if you walked in and you saw it, you would have an impression. All of you have walked into the Christian Union today. Many of you for the first time, and even though we aren't a church, already we are leaving an impression, and already you are forming an opinion about who we are, what we value, and whether you belong. 
Now, this uh, public meeting, public meeting this semester, we'll be reading through the letter of 1 Corinthians. It's a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a church in the city of Corinth in the first century. And in order to understand what Paul says to us in this letter, we need to know what it was like to walk into the Corinthian church. And the first thing to understand about the Corinthian church is that it was impressive. Now, we don't know any of the details. We don't know whether they had like a multi-million dollar building or like a, a great band that was publishing things or like a, a publishing house that was kind of putting out books or, or a massive staff team or, or, you know, whatever it was. But we do know that by the standards of the day, they were outwardly impressive. Uh, and if you look in today's passages where we can get the Bibles out, if you have put them away, now's the time to get them out and then just pretend that you never put them away. Um, you can see there in today's passage in verse 5 that the Corinthians have been enriched in every way with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge. If you skip down to verse, to verse 7, they're not lacking in any spiritual gift. And so this was a gifted church. So these guys had prophets, these guys had people who could speak in tongues, they had top-tier preachers and thinkers, they had people who could wow you with their rhetorical skill, people who could answer all of the tricky ethical questions of the day. Vaccine mandates? No problem. We've got that sorted. Let me tell you what you need to do. And so if you walked into the Corinthian church, you would think that they were everything a church should be. But there was a problem. And the problem was this. Outwardly, they seemed impressive but inwardly they were still worldly. Even though they'd become Christians, they'd received the gifts of the Spirit, they were still governed by the world's thinking and the world's value system. And where we see that manifesting is in how they viewed their leaders. So skim your eyes down to verse 11. This is what Paul reports back to them. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household, presumably his kind of contact on the ground, have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. Now, Paul, Apollos, Cephas, they were all leaders of the church. Some of them were local in Corinth. Others weren't. They were there for a time. There was almost certainly a whole bunch of other local leaders of the church. But Paul intentionally doesn't mention them. Because what has happened is that the Corinthians have split into factions around who they thought was the most gifted leader. And so Paul writes to them and he says, when you walk into your church, you see a church that is exceptional, that's spiritual, that's wonderful. But when I walk into your church, well, what do I see? Well, you can actually see it if you flip over in your Bibles to chapter 3, verse 1. He tells them, I don't see spiritual people, but people who are still worldly. Mere infants in Christ, you are silly children rather than mature adults. And so instead of thanking God for the abundance of the gifted leaders that he has given you, what you're doing is you're sitting there ranking them and comparing them. And so outwardly you look spiritual, but inwardly really you're almost not even Christian. Now, a question for you. That kind of, take that kind of picture in that assessment. What would you do if you knew all of that about this church? And you walked into that church and you saw through all the glamour and the sparkles. You saw them as they really were. What would you say to them? How would you respond? Well, if you're anything like me, you judge them, right? You compare them to your own church. You tell people to avoid them because they clearly don't know what they're going on about. And ironically, like me, you would do the exact thing that the Corinthians were doing. And that's why the beginning of Paul's letter, the letter that we're looking at today, it's so surprising. 
because he doesn't just condemn them out of hand. He has some hard things to say, but he addresses them as God's holy people and he gives thanks for them. And he rebukes them, but in the context of the unity that they share in Christ. And there's a lot there that we can learn. So we're going to have a look at his response to the situation at Corinth. Uh, Today's passage, you'll see, uh, is conveniently in your translations correctly broken down into three sections. It begins with a greeting, it then moves to a thanksgiving, and then finally to an appeal. And in each one of those sections, Paul addresses the Corinthians' error. And he does that by pointing uh, pointing them to an aspect of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So first of all, let's have a look at the greeting. This is in verses 1 to 3. Uh, In the greeting, this is what he does. He reminds them that they share in the common faith with all the other Christians in the world. Now, most of the time in talks or in Bible studies, we kind of gloss over the greeting, right? Because they're kind of boring. Like, we we know what what they look like. They're all similar. It's like, hi, I'm Paul. You're this person. Great. Let's move on to verse 4. But as we look at it, they do follow a pattern. But if we look closely, what we actually notice is that almost all of them are tailored to each church's specific situation. Now, in the New Testament, we have 13 of Paul's letters. Uh, And if you want the bog standard, it's Colossians. So, spoiler alert to the first years. You'll be seeing this in your small groups next week. This is what the opening of Colossians looks like. Begins with a sender. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother. Then moves on to the letters recipients. To God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. And then finally, it has a greeting. It says, grace and peace to you from God, our Father. Pretty standard, yeah? Uh, Now let's have a look at 1 Corinthians. Here are the first three verses of today's passage. Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace and peace to you from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. So, activity for you now with the person next to you for 30 seconds. What do you see that's the same? What do you see that's different? Go. Alrighty, I'm seeing lots of pointing, hearing lots of talking. So hopefully you've done the compare the pair and you've come up with some things. Um, Let's start with similarities. What are some of the similar things that you can see? Do you want to shout out some of the things that you see? <laughs> the greeting. Yes, yeah, spot on, John. So basically, grace and peace, the two key things that the gospel offers you. Um, the grace of God, the peace of God with him as a, an angry God at sin. He kind of greets them with those terms. There is a difference there within the Lord Jesus Christ, but, but generally speaking, yeah, that's a similarity. Um, any other things that are the same? Go on. Yeah. That's right, Kate. So basically, he he starts off and he gives his credentials. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Not trying to, you know, kind of throw a threat at at the Corinthians or the Colossians at that point. But he is telling them that God has given him an apostolic authority to write to them and that they should pay attention. This isn't a letter from the janitor. It's a letter from the CEO. So so, so be aware of it. Um, Okay, so there's some similarities. What's the key difference that you notice? Come on, shout it out. Much longer recipient section. Absolutely. Heaps longer. Does anyone have a kind of a, a, a suggestion as to what is extra that's significant here? 
Yeah, so it's not just to Chanel or to Ed. It's like to Chanel, just so you know, you are doing the same thing that everybody else in this room is doing. And that's actually really significant, right? Because he could have just said to the church in Corinth, holy people of God, great new line, let's move on and get to the heart of the letter. But then he repeats himself. He doesn't just say the holy people, but he says sanctified in Christ Jesus. Those kind of two things are the same. They've been set apart, they're special. And yet despite the fact that they've been set apart and special and called by God, what does he say? Together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then if he hasn't made his point clear enough, their Lord and ours. And so even as a Christian having been called by God, you have this temptation to think you're special. Paul is saying, what are you doing, Corinthians? Look around you. You call on the same name of the same Lord that every other Christian does. There is no such thing as a first or second class Christian, gifted or not. All of you have an equal standing before the Father. Now, we forget this, I think, don't we? Uh, we have a kind of quick look at the church down the road and, and we make, start making assessments. We make assessments about why my church is different, why that group of believers isn't as good, why they haven't really gotten it together. Now, it might not be about giftedness as it was in the case of the Corinthians. It might have been about community. Uh, it might have been about a heart for the marginalised or the oppressed. Uh, but whatever it was, we start making ranking judgments based on those criteria. And, and to be frank, they're not bad criteria. Most of those criteria come from the Bible. But the moment that we start treating other Christians based on what they aren't, rather than what God has made them to be in Christ, that's the moment that we make the same mistake as the Corinthians. And we deny the gospel that we have received and believed. So can you see already how Paul is starting to slowly, gently correct the attitude of the Corinthians? Well, he continues to do it in the next section. Now we move on to the thanksgiving. This is verses 4 to 9. And the thing that he reminds them of here is that everything they have is because of God's generous grace. Now, another activity. Let me read to you the section. This is verses 4 to 9. And I want you to listen out for what the Corinthians bring to the table. Okay? What are they responsible for? What do they do? I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him you have been enriched in every way, with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge, God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. Therefore you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will also keep you firm to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful who has called you into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. What is it that the Corinthians actually do? The answer? Absolutely nothing. Grace was given to them. They were enriched in every way. God confirmed the testimony of Christ among them. I mean, technically, verse 7, they wait for the revelation of Jesus at the end of time. But look at verse 8. It's God who gets them there. Verse 9, it is God who is faithful. It is God who calls the Corinthians into the fellowship of his son. What Paul is saying is essentially you have nothing that God did not give you. Now let's be clear here. Paul is not being like narky here. Like he's not like doing one of those prayer rebukes where you can like, dear, dear Lord, we, we pray for my brother that he will be godly in this situation. Right? He's not trying to kind of get under them. He's genuinely thankful for these people. The church might be a train wreck, but he treats them as genuine believers, blessed by God. But that's the point. 
they have been blessed by God. Everything they have, everything we have as believers, has been given to us by the Lord in Christ. And once we understand that, it begins to make our constant comparisons and our constant judgments of each other seem a little bit stupid, doesn't it? Because in our insecurity and in our pride, we just spend so much time trying to justify to ourselves that we're better, that we're okay, that somehow we've got this made in this Christian community that we're a part of. Just because I can do this or because my church is like this. But frankly, that's about as stupid as a bunch of people all being awarded honorary degrees at UWA and then leaving the auditorium and then starting to boast to one another about how they're the smarter one and they're the more hardworking one. It just doesn't work. A little bit later on in chapter 4, verse 7, Paul says this to them. He says, For who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? And so even as Paul genuinely thanks God for the Corinthians, he is doing so in a way that reminds them that there is nothing that they have that has not been given to them by the grace of God. Now, when we understand that, it actually puts into perspective the gifts that they have been granted. Because the Corinthian mistake was to think that because they had been enriched in every way, in all speech and all knowledge, they were somehow special. But Paul says to them, don't be ridiculous. The reason you've been gifted with speech and gifted with knowledge is to help each other stay Christian until Jesus returns. And you see this there in verse 7 and 8. The reason they're not lacking in any spiritual gift is because they're waiting for the Lord Jesus to be revealed at his return. They're to stand firm and they're to strive to be blameless in the midst of a world that is sinful. And that's why the CU's mission statement is what it is. We didn't just make it up. We actually stole it from God. It's plagiarism with permission. This is the big picture. This is the totality of the game. Christ is coming back to judge and people need to be ready when he returns. And so what do we do here? Well, we proclaim Jesus Christ at UWA to present everyone mature in him. Now, we take our wording from Colossians 1.28, but you could just as easily take it from 1 Corinthians. You could say something on the lines of declaring the name of the Lord Jesus Christ at UWA so that people will be blameless at his return. Whatever words you use, this is really the, the, the thing that drives all of Paul's ministry. And you'll see this idea pop up in all of his letters. And when we take this kind of big idea and we kind of drive it back into the Corinthian situation, what he's doing as he reminds them of that big picture is that he's reminding them that even though that's the case, um, that they need to be striving to be presented blameless at the end times, that itself is a result of God's gracious action as well. You see, making it to the end holy and blameless is not something that you do. It's something that God does. Now, that doesn't mean that you don't put in moral effort And as we read through the letter of 1 Corinthians, you will see Paul consistently throughout his letter call the Corinthians to get serious, to put in the hard work and get right with God and kind of make that kind of function and work. But what he wants them to understand as he calls them to do that is even as they work at their own salvation and their own godliness, it is God who works in them to get them over the line. They can't claim any of it. They're fully dependent on him. And so he thanks God for them, genuinely. And he reminds them of the grace that God gave them. And he reminds them of the God who will sustain them. 
So we have the greeting, the thanksgiving, and finally we have the appeal in verses 10 to 17. Uh, And this is where he stops being indirect and he actually hits the problem head on. And he basically says it straight up. He says to them, I want you to be united. And you see this there in verse 10. What does it say? I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. Now, hearing that, I think, begs the question, if you're to be united in something, what are you united in? Because unity, true unity, will always be around something. I think everybody loves the idea of unity until they have to put it into practice because it's at that point that you have to determine what you agree on is important and what you agree is not important. What you think is the non-negotiable centre that can't be touched and what can just kind of be left to the side and, and not necessarily be resolved. And one of the things I hope that you're seeing as we work through this passage is that the non-negotiable centre for Paul, the thing about which Christians unify is the gospel of Jesus Christ, which they have received. Um, Have a look at verse 13. We'll read through to the end and see if we can't pick up this same theme running here in this last section. He responds to their division. He says, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptised in the name of Paul? I thank God that I did not baptise any of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one can say that you were baptised in my name. And he has an aside, yes, I also baptised the household of Stephanus. There was no kind of white out back then, so he's like, oh, crikey, I can't go and add the extra name in. Um, But beyond that, I don't remember if I baptised anyone else. And then he finishes by saying, for Christ did not send me to baptise, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Now, we're going to look at that last verse next week. But for now, it's important and it's enough for us to see that Paul draws our attention to the fact that as Christians, we only have one Lord. Christ is not divided. We only have one person who was crucified for us, the Lord Jesus. We only have one name into whom we are baptised, the name of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. Specifically, I think in this case, he's talking about Jesus. It wasn't Paul, it wasn't Apollos, it wasn't Cephas, it wasn't any other church leader. You can put your John Pipers away. Christians unite around one leader, and his name is Jesus. But I want you to notice that Paul goes one step further. You see, the non-negotiable centre of Christian unity is not merely Christ, but the gospel of Christ. Now, pay attention to that distinction. It's going to be really important for us next week. You see, the Corinthians were not just to be united around the person of Christ, Anyone can do that. Buddhists can do that. Social activists can do that, right? Jesus loved the poor. Fantastic. We're behind Jesus. Let's gather around him. No, the Corinthians needed to be united around the gospel of Christ, a definitive declaration about who Jesus was and what he did. You see, out there, out in the world, people believe in all sorts of Jesuses, but there's only one Jesus that is real, and there is only one Jesus that can save. And that's why Paul takes great pains in his letter to the Corinthians to establish and outline the precise shape of that gospel. And over the next couple of weeks, we're going to see that traced out in quite a lot of detail. But for now, it's enough to see the summary that he gives us a little bit later on in the letter in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. should be up on the screen. No, it's not. So that's okay. If you've got your Bibles, you can go up to them. Otherwise, you can listen up and I'll read 1 Corinthians 15 verses 3 to 4. He says to them later on in the letter this, 
I'll let you turn there now. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. Note that, first importance. This is the non-negotiable centre. That Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas and then the Twelve and a whole bunch of other people that he appeared to as well. And those verses, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that Christ was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, that's the central thing for him. And that's what the Corinthians were to agree on and unite around. Not over human leaders, but over the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Because what unites Christians is Christ, specifically the Christ that Paul proclaims in the Bible, the one who died a sacrificial death for our sins. And the one who was raised to life again as Lord. The one who will return to judge and rule the world. And being clear on that at the outset for us at the beginning of this year, for Christians, it's just so important. Because if we're not clear on what unites us, then we will divide over things that don't matter. Like our human leaders. Like the impressiveness of our church's ministries. And the thing that Paul wants to make abundantly clear to us as we read his letter is that the shape and the content of the gospel of Jesus, it's actually the lens through which we view the world. And if we don't have that lens right, then we will see the world askew. If it's warped, we won't see clearly. And then what will happen is we'll make stupid decisions. We'll make stupid value judgments that are just stupid. And we'll do things like band around whose leader is better. You see, the Corinthians, they didn't see the problem. They thought what they were doing was logical and natural. We're going to choose the most gifted person. We're going to have it out. We're going to make sure we find out who the the real leader is. And the reason they didn't see it as a problem is because they did not understand with sufficient clarity the gospel that they had received. And so they divided when they should have remained united. And that's how they got into that mess. Now, we have the same danger at the Christian Union. Because all of us, every year, come together from a variety of church backgrounds. And one of the things that we learn very, very quickly is that we do not agree with each other on everything. And the temptation we will face is to rank and compare and divide and box each of us into like the Caro camp or the Anglican camp or that weird one in the middle, the Charismanglican camp or or, or whatever it is. And so one of the questions that we need to ask and we need to answer at the beginning of every year is what will unite us? And what are we willing to let sit to one side, not because it's unimportant, but because it's not as important as the non-negotiable centre, the proclamation of Christ and him crucified, the proclamation of Jesus Christ, in our case at UWA, to present everyone mature in him. Now, that doesn't mean that the CU doesn't have doctrinal distinctions. We do. You'll learn about them. Your thinking will be challenged here. We hope that it does. Uh, But we will discuss those differences because that's a part of what it looks like to agree with one another in everything and be perfectly united in mind and thought. It's to, as a community centred around the gospel of Jesus, come together and talk about those things. But we will never do it at the expense of the main thing that unites us. We'll never let it take centre stage when the main thing needs to stay the main thing. We will never let it happen at the expense of the gospel of Christ as taught in the Bible. So let me finish where I started, and then I'll offer you an invitation. 
You've just walked into the CU and you have been left with an impression. Now, we might have nailed it. We might have completely botched it. After all, we didn't bring any mechanical animals with us. <laughs> it's a problem. We may be exactly like your church. We might be entirely unlike anything that you have ever experienced, whether you're a Christian or not. But the one thing that I hope that you have seen is that at the beating heart of the CU is the gospel of Jesus Christ and how it shapes everything. And so my invitation to you all is this. If you call on the name of the Lord Jesus, then come and join us. Join us as we study the scriptures. Join us as we deepen our knowledge of that gospel and we proclaim it to others to present them mature and blameless at Jesus' coming. Thousands upon thousands of people set foot on this campus every day and every single one of them needs to know the grace that can be found only in the Lord Jesus. So I want to say give us a go. Stressed, anxious, overwhelmed by your timetable, that's okay. Lock us in, give us four weeks to see how it goes. Stick around and see if your life and your faith isn't enriched and matured by the community that we have here. If you don't call on the name of the Lord Jesus, that's okay. The invitation is for you as well. Because we want you here. We want you here so that we can tell you about the Jesus that we know, the gospel that saved us, the grace that forgave us, the new life that God has given us. Because we want you to share in that as well.